0: excellent Um, thank you so much Uh, thank you all for being here Uh, thank you tamper tantrum for inviting me this is really a dream come true um, on a lot of levels and um, I'm really humbled to be amongst the speakers today Uh, my talk is gonna be less technical and a little bit more uh, from the heart so I hope that you find uh, something to like about that Um, but like Steven said I am Katie Carjulo. Uh, I work for counterculture coffee and I have been in coffee for 13 years. And um, last year I changed roles. Um, I started working more on the uh, quality and green side of things and it was uh, really has been a challenging year for me. Um, it has also had um, a lot of accomplishments, but I've learned a lot so, What I decided to talk about today was I wanted to tell you guys a little bit more about those challenges. Um, In order to do that, I have to tell you a little bit more about where it is that I came from as well. Um, So I'm gonna take you through that experience uh, and then sort of expand. And um, I think like most people in this room, I got my start as a barista in coffee. And that was in 2001, 2002. And in 2005, I traveled to compete in my first barista competition. And it was from that experience and the people that I met there that I decided that I wanted to be in coffee forever. Um, I was at university at the time studying anthropology and so my general sort of interest in culture and travel um, made me sort of decide that I someday wanted to be a green buyer. How many people in this room have had that same aspiration to be a green buyer in coffee? And how many people are green buyers? yeah cool (laughs) a lot more people wanting to do it than there are jobs available to do it Um, so it has been 10 years uh, since that decision and i am getting closer so i'm really excited to uh, share that experience today Um, i want to talk to you first about my time as a barista i often look back on that time very fondly because as i said that was the time that i fell in love with coffee Uh, that I fell in love with the coffee community and sort of decided that I wanted to do it forever. So there's five things that I think about when I think about what it was about being a barista that really appealed to me, things that I took away from that time um, and has propelled me forward. So the first uh, three things actually have to do mostly, I think, with coffee businesses. Um, And I learned that these three things are really important for any coffee business and that's quality, efficiency, and service. So quality just being that people really like good tasting coffee and the extra work that we put into specialty coffee matters and actually makes a difference. I think that you can argue whether or not people um, really understand the distinction or really, frankly, want to know everything about it, but You know specialty coffee in the past 10 years has exploded our section of the market is growing so I think that people understand that there are different tiers of quality and they want in on ours and then the next is efficiency no matter how great your coffee is um, it's not gonna be a great experience for somebody if they feel like you've wasted their time in any way shape or form I lived in New York City for seven years and New Yorkers are not known for being very patient and so (laughs) I sort of took to heart the fact that you know the worst thing that you can do to somebody besides make them a bad coffee is waste their time in the process and then the last part is service you know and and this has a big impact other than the quality um, and the efficiency of your business is how you treat people Um, and also how you set up your business sort of how intuitive you make it for people to uh, get what you want them to experience from you um, as well as you know how the people Interact with your customers is going to make can make or break um, your customer experience. And so these are three things that I think about a lot um, at all parts of the supply chain in coffee. But it doesn't really tell you why it is that I wanted to work in coffee and why it is that I wanted to keep going. Um, part of that, this sounds cheesy, but it's just that it was fun. Um, I really liked working in a coffee shop. I liked having fun with my coworkers. I liked the conversations that we were having about coffee. And not about coffee um, and that's a big part of how I approach my job. I try and be um, a fun co-worker and a hard-working co-worker as well um, and then also at that time remember I was you know making a decision to dedicate my career to coffee and I recognized that we're not saving the world necessarily with coffee but I think that at the time I wanted to attribute some meaning to the work that I was dedicating myself to doing. Um, And so when I thought about it, I thought that I was part of creating something for somebody else, giving them a product that would literally become part of them. You're giving them something not that they look at or not that they, you know, wear, but something that they consume um, and becomes a part of their sort of whole being. And so in that way, I thought that it was okay to take it really seriously, Um, that it's just coffee, but it is okay to treat it like an art. So after working as a barista for five years, I moved um, on to barista training. Um, and I moved to New York City to work for Counterculture Coffee. Counterculture, if you guys don't know, we don't have coffee shops. So I couldn't work as a barista for counterculture. I had to do sort of wholesale customer support and barista training. And I thought that this was going to be an amazing opportunity, because I thought that I was going to be able to take you know a three minute interaction with someone about coffee and get to expand that to three hours and tell them everything that is amazing about specialty coffee. And I also thought that I was going to be speaking to an audience of like an audience like you guys, like people that really care and really want to know. And the reality was is that sometimes it was a little bit more challenging than I had thought because um, it's difficult within three hours for people to actually, you know, retain the information that you need them to retain um, in order to make coffee really well. And also, I would say that everybody has the aptitude to learn how to make great coffee, but not everybody had the interest. And I couldn't really just leave those people aside and not engage with them. I had to figure out a way um, to get my message across to everybody. Um, So during that time, I think that there were two big things that I took away um, from doing this type of work. And the first one is quality is a moving target in coffee. And this is something that I realized more than ever before, uh, and part of this was that you know, in wholesale training, a lot of times you go into a place that isn't really totally set up for making coffee well in the way that you would think. Uh, maybe they don't quite have the right equipment, or they're not choosing the coffees that like you would really want them to choose, or they're not presenting them on a menu the way that you think that they should be presented. Um, and so, I had to work within all of those situations, and honestly, I was a lot of times surprised at some of the results, that coffee could actually be really delicious brewed on a French press, so that like you could actually like dial in a dark roast coffee pretty well. Um, and sometimes, you know, the other side of that coin is that people in places that were set up to do a great job with coffee, sometimes those experiences would be disappointing in sort of trying to figure out why it was um, that A plus B didn't equal C a quality product uh, at all times. And the other part that's difficult about quality being a moving target is, you know, I had to reconcile how do I teach people about coffee when everything that I know about coffee is evolving and constantly changing. And I'm always sort of like changing my mind in what I think is good. Um, And so that sort of brings me to the second part of what I learned during that time, which was really important, which was um, the importance of being comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, So you know I was expected to get up in front of groups of people and inspire them about coffee and um, I hope I'm doing a really good job today but talking in front of people is not actually very easy for me and it doesn't I don't like it uh, very much and I also don't like to present myself as an expert on anything like it makes me feel a little bit like a fraud so you know (laughs) but it was important for me to be comfortable with this uncomfortable feeling and be able to present what it is that i know about coffee while at the same time being totally transparent about the stuff that i'm still figuring out and that honestly the industry is still figuring out uh, so that people could benefit from that knowledge so after seven years of that I, i had this really amazing opportunity to get even closer to my sort of original goal in coffee and counterculture opened a second roasting facility in the United States, uh, just in the Bay Area, just outside of San Francisco. And um, my official title is quality analyst. And so I'm part of the green coffee team. And I um, sample roast coffee and I cup it and I score it and I sort of look at green coffee as well and do an analysis on that. Um, I do some QC for that roastery of the roasted product and then I'm also starting to help out um, on some of the projects that we work on uh, where counterculture buys coffee. And I thought that having 12 years experience in the industry was going to mean that... um, I knew a lot about coffee already. I knew how to taste coffee. I was familiar with the cupping process. It'd be very easy for me to learn how to cup and grade coffee. And I was totally wrong and really humbled by this experience because I realized that tasting coffee for extraction or tasting coffee, you know, to see if your customers would like it, is actually really different from the way that cuppers taste and evaluate coffee. And so I needed to calibrate to a different uh, standard than I had been calibrating to before. And um, so I'm gonna go through and sort of tell you a little bit more about how I got good at the tasting coffee portion of my job um, because after a couple of weeks honestly months of failures in the cupping lab trying to calibrate with our buyers um, I sort of decided that I needed to look at it a little bit differently in order to develop the skills so the first thing that I did was look at tasting coffee as a game of logic and that you just need to find clues in the cup Uh, to lead you to the right conclusion. So you just, you know, need to have a reference point for saying this is high acidity, you know, this is cleanliness in the cup, this is dry. And in order to do that, for me, it really helped me to calibrate to a sample. So we would put a coffee on the table that had a known set of characteristics and a known score, and then I could specifically reference that coffee when I was tasting everything else to sort of figure out um, where the other coffees Uh, fell in terms of um, coffee score. And I would taste coffee, come to a conclusion about it, and then go back and check it. So I would take that coffee, and maybe take the same table and mix it up. Or take a coffee and put it on another table next to different coffees. And as much as possible, I try and taste blind. And then afterwards, I can look at my notes, look at my overall score, and start to see whether or not um, I'm judging things consistently, and I'm coming up with the same answer. And as that started to sort of fall into place, I realized that the same skill that I needed as a barista trainer, um, being comfortable, being uncomfortable was applicable here in that I really needed to have confidence, like I needed to be able to make a decision and not constantly second guess myself um, because I was getting it. I was actually tasting coffee and like being relatively consistent but not have a huge ego that if somebody that knew more than me told me that I was wrong, I couldn't accept it. Or if sometimes I made a mistake and I missed something, that you know, you'd know you go into this downward spiral and be like, I'm terrible at this and I'm never gonna be good at tasting coffee. You know, Humans are fallible. Sometimes you make mistakes and you have to be able to move on. So this tells you a little bit more about um, how I got good at the tasting or am starting to get good at the tasting portion of my job but it doesn't really tell you why it is that I wanted to do this type of work in the first place and the why isn't because I want to be this like super all-knowing taster and then I want to be able to taste coffee and be like this is right about it and this is wrong and this is what score it should have Um, it's because I want to be able to contribute to the quality of coffee. Like I want to be able to actually make coffee better. And that's what I think that really good green coffee buyers too. They don't just find the best coffees on the table or buy the best coffees year after year. They're like an active part of the process of quality making. And to be able to do that, I need to be able to read a taste experience um, and to understand how did this coffee become what it is that I'm tasting today. So that way, eventually, I can start to do um, some of the hard work in the supply chain to actually improve coffee. And the other reason that I was interested in this is because I'm just, in general, interested in quality. And you know, as a barista, as I said, I started to look at coffee like it was an art. And I sort of see coffee quality as being a little bit similar to artistic quality in that They both can seem, from the outside, pretty subjective, but once you learn a little bit more about the history and the technique that goes into something, the less subjective and a little more objective things can seem. One second before, just look at this lovely painting. (laughs) Thanks. Okay, so this is, does anybody know which painting this is? It's here in Paris, I'm gonna go see it. (laughs) It is Monet's Impression Sunrise. All right, so let me tell you about what I see when I look at this painting. Uh, It is a mostly gray color palette, right? Grays and blues. Um, There is some brushing and shading going on that makes the sky a little bit indistinguishable from the sea. And there's a little bit of color, but it's not really the center point of the piece. And it's certainly not as colorful as some of Monet's later works. Uh, When this painting came out, it was actually pretty controversial in the art community in terms of whether or not it was good quality art. Uh, But we now know, looking back on it, that this is the painting that is supposedly inspired Impressionism, which is a totally new way of painting. And so I wanna talk to you a little bit more about color in here. And when I was having a conversation with uh, some peers of mine about coffee calibration, my friend, uh, US cup taster champion, Amanda Juris, shared with me a quote that she uses when she talks to people about calibration. And it says, given more color names, aqua, teal, and periwinkle, in addition to blue, we do seem to respond to more colors, or at least to group the colors we're shown more finely. In other words, having more shades for blue helps you tag the memory more easily, though it doesn't really mean that you see more colors than the next guy. So what if we look at the colors in the painting as tasting attributes? So what if you can see all the colors in the painting, you can taste all the notes in the coffee, but it doesn't really you have an enhanced experience once you have the language to describe it. Like once you know a little bit more about how many shades of gray are in Impression Sunrise, um, you might look at that painting a little bit differently if you had language. (laughs) Um, Now, what would happen if somebody told you that some of these colors were bad? and that this was something that was wrong with the painting or some of the way that the colors were shaded together were bad. That might have an influence on the way that you saw that painting or if you saw any other painting that kind of had those same characteristics. Um, And this is actually one of the things that I was really afraid of in taking this job as quality analyst is that the more that I learned about quality and what was supposed to be good and what was supposed to be bad, uh, the less that I would be able to enjoy coffee. Like I would just taste coffee, and automatically be thinking 84, you know, dirty. Um, (laughs) That's a bad example, but you know, even like anything left on the table, like 90 but not 100, like how can we get it to 100? And you know, when you think about it, this is something that is not um, isolated to green coffee buying. This happens all along the supply chain. We often tell people when we're training them, like I'm gonna ruin you for coffee. And what we mean by that is like, once you learn what goes into great coffee and once you have a great coffee experience, you're never gonna be able to uh, drink bad coffee again. And I think that that's a good thing. And um, hopefully you all had a reaction to this photo. I picked this specifically because this coffee looks terrible. (laughs) Uh, The picking is gross, there's that moldy bean. Um, You are all ruined for coffee, everybody in this room, Uh, because you know too much at least about uh, coffee quality. And, You know, I think that it's okay. I think it's okay for us to be uh, critical. And I don't think that we need to accept the status quo of coffee as it is in 2015. Like, I think that we should find ways to push people's expectations. Um, But I don't think that outright negativity all the time is the way to do that. And I see people in coffee, they start out super, they have a great cup of coffee, they're curious about how it happened start out super curious, and then eventually they get jaded and frustrated because um, the more that they learn about how difficult quality is to actually execute um, and how quality is a moving target, uh, the more uh, disillusioned they can become. And I'm gonna give you an example. Like if, you know, one of my pet peeves is going into a coffee shop and having somebody hand me an espresso and say, Um, I don't know how it is I'm still dialing it in. How many people have had this happen to them in a cafe? Yeah all the time and it's like number one dial in your coffee to the best of your ability and then number two like if you want to have a conversation about afterwards why maybe it wasn't the best coffee experience that's great but don't start me off on a negative foot let me have my own experience uh, with the coffee. And so that sort of is leading me to my grand conclusion of the message that I sort of want to leave with you guys today and what it is that I've learned from being a barista and being a trainer and sort of working on these, this green side of things is that everybody has an opportunity and therefore a responsibility to add to the quality of coffee or at least to the quality of coffee, um, a coffee's experience. I think that there is um, a attitude sometimes in coffee that uh, green quality is the pinnacle and everything that we do to coffee from roasting it to brewing it uh, can only degrade the coffee from there. Like you can only maintain, um, if anything, it's gonna get worse. And I don't necessarily think that quality uh, is a one-way street like that. I think that you can Uh, improve on coffee and you can make something great for somebody um, in all facets of the way that coffee um, is prepared and served along the supply chain. So, you know, I think that figuring out how to optimize that is tricky because quality is a moving target, but uh, everybody can contribute and that's it.
1: fantastic presentation as I expected. Um, That was really good. Um, I've got to ask a question before I throw it out because I just get to ask all the questions. It's really good. What was it like working for the the Enigma that is Nick Cho at Murky Coffee?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was the period of time that I fell in love with coffee. and um, I think that it was a really good experience because Nick really cares about people a lot and he puts people first and he is really um, dedicated to his staff and to the customers and so that was sort of the lesson that I learned there uh, was that you know people and community matters and then you know I sort of learned other lessons um, once I switched to counterculture but that was sort of a foundation for me.
1: I think Nick Cho is the elephant in the room that we haven't had on Tampa Tantrum, and yeah. it's somebody that we've got to get on at some point. I'm sure he would come up with something controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'm going to ask you about is Tokyo, 2007. Was yeah. really when I first kind of get got to know uh, about. I knew about you working at Merky from the Porter Filter podcast, mm-hmm. but then. Um, you went to Tokyo and kind of invented streaming with Zachary Carlson, didn't you?
0: Yeah, so Zachary Carlson, who's one of the co-founders of Sprudge.com, he also worked uh, with me at uh, Murky Coffee in Washington, D.C., as did David Nigel Flynn, who might be in this room somewhere. And um, Zachary and I just had like a funny blog where we would make videos about coffee, and um, people kind of responded to it, so we had the idea to start, I don't even know how we did it, I think it was through PayPal, but these days it would be like a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe to get the coffee community to pay for us to go to Tokyo, to go to the WBC, because at that time, uh, the WBC wasn't streamed at all, and the only way that you could see it was they would make videos of the only the finalists, and then sell those a couple months later um, so that your family could buy them or the coffee community could buy them so that they could learn like, hey, why are these people winning? Um, and we went just to blog about it. And we were really just going to write about it mostly and take photos. But Zachary knows a lot more about technology than I do. And he just like plugged some stuff in and just made it stream. And that, you know, was the standard from then on of how barista competitions are viewed.
1: Well, Zachary said hi, by the way. We did a podcast with him last night awesome. uh, that's going to be the next Tampa Tantrum podcast uh, with Jordan as well. So we talked about it then. And yeah, he said to say hi. Um, you guys should ask questions. Isn't it? just about us chatting to each other up here, I guess. So, has anybody got a question for Katie?
0: Oh well, just a quick question, I guess. Um, you say that it's important to have a language to describe what we taste, um, so we can. Add, I, I, I feel like this is an issue in coffee industry. I feel like. So in wine, they'll have a complete different vocabulary when they taste. So when I taste in wine, I will put the same vocabulary as in coffee and they will be like, no. I'm like, oh, that's sweet. Like, no, there's no sugar in this. I'm like, I'm not saying there's sugar, but, and so I feel like we're quite limited in our uh, coffee vocabulary. So do you, um, how can we improve that as an industry? Do you have like, you've got quite a good experience, I guess, of tasting and on a personal level, could we do something about that um i'm not sure how it could be improved i know that i'm i like to be as precise as possible and i was actually talking about this with charlotte yesterday the french barista champion in that i was discussing how in the barista competition you're you're rewarded for precision in tasting notes like you're you're supposed to be very specific about you know what color fruity pebbles it is that you're tasting in the coffee that you're serving somebody. Um, but as a person that now writes descriptions of coffee on coffee bags, I actually try and be as general as possible because I don't want to be alienating to somebody that hasn't had the same cultural experience that I've had or uh, doesn't taste the same notes. So, you know, rather than say Meyer lemon, I usually just say citrus. Um, to really just try and make it a little bit more basic. Although I think that you know, I do think that descriptions are important. It gives people a general idea, um, but I try and be a little bit more general.
1: I really like the point you made about the uh, the game of logic that you play when when tasting. And mm-hmm. last week in Manchester, we had a tamper tantrum, and the final speaker of the day was no- nothing to do with coffee. He was a Sennelier. Uh, master of wines and he was talking about exactly the same idea of the game of logic that he plays where you know he'll go oh, this tastes like fairly new fruit so it's probably new wine and you know I'm getting this very high citrus so it leads me to think this and but also using those comparisons I mean Nick will hate us if we mention the wine thing because he doesn't like it. <laughs> I like wine. I, I like wine a lot it's really good but you like do you think we can take things from that wine industry and actually stop bringing them into coffee, or should we just kind of create our own thing from, from scratch?
0: Um, I mean, it's probably good if we do our own thing. Um,
1: I'll I, put you in charge then. Is that okay?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Um, but yeah, I think that it's... It, I try to have a balance because, you know, like Morton was talking about, you can... Um, once you start to taste something, you can get biased if you're like, oh, well, this is obviously a geisha. You know, or, oh, this is obviously a naturally processed coffee. And that can be a little bit limiting in, in the way that that can cloud your experience with something, but it's not, there's not really a way to like turn that off, especially if you really are trying to communicate and make connections to um, the processing or the supply chain of coffee. So I think there's a balance.
1: I guess that's no different between the red and the white wine thing. You can't get away from that naturally or that washed, processed coffee, and you, know, you have to try and not let that bias uh, kick in. Uh, has anybody else got a question for Katie?
0: I explained everything so clearly. You, did it. you, you, you must just have just kidding. completely <laughs> now. Hello. Hi. Uh, I
1: I see many things in common with uh, many things you talk about, especially the training part of a clients as a wholesale grocery, and I would like to know if you find any way to at least make some people that are not very interested but more comfortable with the equipment and and like making a better coffee?
0: Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think fun had a lot to do with that for me. I would just try and make the training sessions like a a fun, good time um, so that people wouldn't, you know, afterwards wouldn't be like, well, that was a waste of time. Um, (laughs) And really, um, I kind of forgot to say this, but The way that I approached um, trying to teach people about something was always to uh, show rather than tell. So rather than tell people what it was that they were supposed to experience, um, I would try and lead them through a process that would get them to that conclusion. So like for example, if I was training a barista and they forgot to tamp, rather than stop them and say, hey, you forgot to tamp, I would let them insert the portafilter, turn on the group head and then watch the shot and watch their faces. They got a little bit confused. (laughs) Help them walk backwards to figure out what it is that they did wrong. Also taste the shot to see like, oh, how it makes it different. And in that way, I felt like the more that people went through those motions, the more memorable it would make the experience. And then also with all of the tasting, especially of poorly prepared coffee, it would sort of give them more tools in their arsenal to troubleshoot when I wasn't in the room. Um, so I tried to make it really um, a lot of hands-on time, a lot of time people actually experiencing coffee and tasting coffee, and you know just trying to be funny and fun so that people would have a great time.
1: Well, I think we've all had a great time. See, look at that link. Wow, oh, that was so good. I think we had a great time watching Katie today. Please, a huge round of applause for Katie Carjulo.